It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, May 24th, 2017, and you're listening to God and Comics, the show that Daily Bugle editor J. Jonah Jameson affectionately refers to as fake news. On today's show, a little bit of afterlife delight as we discuss how comics handle the idea of heaven, hell, and the general concept of life after death. It's a grave subject, but we promise a lively conversation. <laughs> Plus, as always, we'll have our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I am Rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm at Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And also on the line today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm at St. George's, Schenectady. And uh, uh, Father Matt is also uh, recording live from Prague, I believe. Is that uh, is that accurate uh, today? Uh, <laughs> from from um, the Prague room in my office, as the... I call it. It's, we've got the infant of Prague. Uh, observing our podcast today. Yes, so that's 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 exciting. So if uh, if he suddenly starts uh, speaking in tongues, it's probably just Czech that he's speaking. So don't worry too much about it. So there we are. Uh, and uh, as we announced recently, we are very pleased now to be sponsored by the Living Church. The Living Church is an independent, non-profit ministry seeking and serving the church's unity, life, and vitality through journalism, publishing, organizing, and leadership development. Check out all of their offerings and products at livingchurch.org. And now uh, I will make a completely nonsensical segue, because I don't have any <laughs> plan, uh, to our recommendation this week, which comes to us from the one, the only, the bearded Father Kyle. Some of you have been aware of the fact that I've been absolutely enamored with DC's uh, Rebirth event, uh, in which they've sought to kind of reestablish some of the continuity into the DC universe that's been lost, with the idea of recapturing the hope and the optimism that these characters once had and, and has kind of whittled away over time. So back last year when DC did their Rebirth event, they teased out some hints as to um, a villain mastermind who was behind the whole uh, darkness that has invaded into the DC universe. And it turns out that that, that person that they've been teasing has been um, Dr. Manhattan from The Watchmen. So my recommendation today with that little segue is the four-issue series that just completed that was a crossover between Batman and The Flash called The Button. One of the things in the DC Rebirth standalone issue that happened was Batman found a button in his Batcave that was the comedian's blood-stained button from The Watchmen. And we haven't heard much about it since then, but Batman and The Flash have been investigating this button, trying to figure out where it's come from and what kind of secrets it holds. And in this four-part story, Batman and The Flash, through their investigation, encounter Eobard Thawne, the reverse Flash, who 
comes in and to the Bat Cave when Batman is studying the button and mercilessly assaults him. Who is back from the dead? Who is back from the dead? Right. right. Yeah. And uh, this leads when the Flash arrives on the scene. This leads to a um, a bit of a uh, time traveling and dimension hopping journey in which uh, Batman and the Flash encounter some interesting folks from the recent past. And uh, it all begins to point towards what's actually taking place behind the scenes in the DC universe. And I don't want to say a whole lot more beyond that because I don't want to give away any of the little juicy tidbits that are in there. But it's all pointing towards the next big DC event, which will occur in November called the Doomsday Clock. We get this intriguing little tease at the very end of that Doomsday Clock event. So if you've been reading DC Comics, and even if you haven't, I would encourage you to get this four-part series and start with DC Rebirth number one and then read this. And I think you'll enjoy it. I've been thrilled by it. Well, uh, thank you for that recommendation, Father Kyle. And we turn now from one uh, mysterious thing to another. We're going to talk a little bit today about... Uh, the afterlife and how comics deal with the concept of life after death. Now, this is different from another large topic that at some point we'll address, life after death in comics that has to do with resurrected characters, which is, of course, something that comic books have become notorious for, uh, particularly in the last 20 years. But comics have, nevertheless, on many occasions, explored just the idea of what happens when we die? Where do we go? What, you know, what, what is the nature of that? Of course, people have always wondered about this, and in multiple cultures, multiple religions across the world and across time, there have been ideas about that. Now, usually our pattern, if, if you're familiar with the show, is that we talk about comic books, we talk about something related to comic books, and then if there's something that gets us going on a spiritual or theological topic, we might kind of explore that a little later in the show. But we thought that uh, since this topic is so directly plugged in to something that is of a theological or spiritual nature, that we might actually start with a little bit of conversation about, at least from our perspective as Christians, you know, what the Christian tradition teaches us about heaven and hell and what happens to us when we die. Father Matt, if you wouldn't mind starting, just starting the ball rolling with that, what does the Christian tradition, you know, in a nutshell, something short enough you can fit into a tweet <laughs> on what the Christian tradition says about heaven and hell and what happens to us when we die? Well, I, in, in the historic creeds of the Christian church, of the Apostles and Nicene Creed, we, we, we hear mention of the resurrection of the dead. And so the resurrection of the dead is the core eschatological hope. Now, that's a big fancy <laughs> word, eschatological. It has nothing to do with investigating deer droppings or anything like that. <laughs> um, eschatology is, is the... Um, if, by the way, if you're listening and you thought that it was about deer droppings, which I guarantee you a certainly a certain percentage of our audience did, please go ahead, write us in and tell us that. I'd love to know like what the numbers are on that. <laughs> but um, 
it's basically the wing of theology, the, the realm of theology that has to do with studying the last things, the final things. And, and you know, that includes heaven and hell and the second coming and all of those uh, areas of theology and biblical interpretation. For Christians, the core is the resurrection of the dead. Christ raised from the dead bodily on Easter Day, and that's the primary festival uh, of, of the Christian church. Uh, we believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, but we don't believe that that was something that, well, you know, boy, that was strange. It, it happened to, to one guy in history. Now, we believe that Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of God's restoration of the whole cosmos. And that in some time in the future, all the dead will be raised, some to everlasting life and, and, and some to, to judgment and everlasting condemnation. We believe that we will have bodies once again, but new, uh, restored, glorified bodies like Jesus's own resurrected body. And so I, I think for some people that might come as a surprise because we, we usually talk of heaven and hell as sort of two different destinations that the soul and not the body depart to uh, after death. And certainly heaven and hell both loom large in Christian eschatology, but they're not the end of the world as Bishop N.T. Wright uh, talks about. I think oftentimes we have a very disembodied view of life after death. And the biblical picture is actually kind of more complicated than that. We have an intermediate state immediately after death. And there, there, there's been some debate in the history of Christian theology about what that intermediate state includes. Is it a conscious state? Uh, is it a state of, of, of slumber? Where is the soul? What about the uh, idea of purgatory? Uh, the, the idea that there is a place of purgation that souls must pass through before attaining to the bliss of heaven. This has been an, a, a, a contentious uh, debate between uh, Protestants and Catholics. Uh, is there such a thing? Uh, so there's a lot of mystery and, and debate around the topic of life after death. And there's a lot of sort of muddiness in the culture about what life after death is all about. And some of that isn't particularly biblical or, or even very Christian. If somebody says to you, uh, Father, what is heaven like? What is hell like? I don't get that one quite as often, but that, that is a question that people have, you know. We certainly have a picture of those things in our in our mind as a culture, that heaven is kind of, uh, you know, endless ice cream and milkshakes and clouds with people playing harps and so forth. Uh, and hell is uh, just one, you know, never-ending far side cartoon, I suppose. What does the Bible tell us about these things? What does Christian theology tell us about these things? When people usually ask that question of me, I, one of the things that I like to point out to them is the distinction between heaven as a state and heaven as a place. Mm. Um, 
you know, we've often in the church over the course of many, many years slipped into a pattern of holding on to what's called a Gnostic idea of heaven, which uh, Father Matt alluded to, this sort of idea that you become a disembodied spirit and you float off, um, you know, to the place that you just described, Father Jonathan, you know, clouds and harps. And I jokingly used to say it's the Philadelphia cream cheese commercial, right? Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the picture that a lot of people tend to hold is that heaven is a place of disembodied spirit. But I think that the use of the word heaven in scriptures, while having a place sense to it, has in a lot of ways more of a state sense to it. You know, certainly the hope that we're looking forward to is the hope of the resurrection of the dead, as Father Matt pointed out. And that's a bodily resurrection. There are many Christians who don't know that. I actually had one in my former congregation who, when I said that, said, we're not looking forward to a bodily resurrection, are we? And I said, yes, it's what we say in the creed. And I then showed her 1 Corinthians 15, and she said, you know, at 80-some years old, I've never heard this before. So that is the hope we're holding on to and looking forward to, is that when Christ comes again, it will be the new heavens and the new earth, the restored creation, this world restored and perfected and glorified. For lack of a, a perhaps a better way of stating it, it's a return to Eden, and that's where we get the idea of heaven. Um, it's a return back to the perfection that the creation once held before we um, engaged in the fall or the uprising or whatever you want to call it. And it'll be that restoration back to a union with God, back to a life with God that is characterized just by perfection. As far as I understand scripture and, and you know, my own theological perspective on this is that the kinds of life, the kind of life that we engage in here and now, there'll be reflections of that kind of life in the new creation. You know, God created us to tend to the creation and um, have vocations and, you know, do things to serve one another. And as I see it, that's sort of a picture of what the new creation will look like. Of course, without all of the toil and the labor and the heartache and the, um, you know, scripture says the crying and the mourning and the tears, that stuff will all be gone from this new creation. So it's not that we're going to do nothing. Uh, it's not that we're all going to sit around on clouds strumming harps. It's not that we're all going to become angels. It's that we will have callings. And we will live out those callings and we will be present with our Lord in a way that we're not um, currently. Uh, it'll be, you know, that kind of perfection of walking with the Lord in the cool of the garden, just enjoying his presence eternally and, and one another. I, I think if I can uh, build on what both of you guys are, are saying, and especially what you were saying, Father Kyle, about these things as states of being, which is not how we usually think of them. We usually think of them as places that you go to, which always makes me think of uh, the gospel from uh, John 14, which we uh, very often have at funerals, uh, where Jesus says, I go to make a place for you, and if I go, uh, you know the way where I am going. And, and Thomas says, Lord, how can we know where you're go uh, going if we don't know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And his point being that 
he has not come to uh, draw a map to some geographic location that we have to get to. Uh, he has come to bring us into the kind of beautiful, full relationship with God that we were created for. And that heaven is that state in which we are in full communion with God, in which there is nothing that is lacking in our communion and relationship with God. And hell, by contrast, is, if you like, sort of the opposite of that, is that place where we are uh, as far away from communion with God as you can get, and the agony, therefore, that one experiences in hell, even though the imagery, so we get a lot of imagery in scripture, and it's confusing for, I think, a lot of people, because there's a lot of heaven and hell imagery that doesn't come from scripture. There's a lot of heaven and hell imagery that comes from Renaissance art, or that comes from even uh, less uh, reputable sources, you know, Hallmark or whatever, you know. Um <laughs> Uh, Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes. Uh, people watching uh, that Michael Landon show from the 80s. What was that called? Uh, Highway to Heaven. Highway to Heaven, you know. <laughs> Stuff like that that just kind of like shifts our perception. But what Scripture does talk about, you know, there are sort of, there is imagery of, of fire, for instance, that is connected with hell and burning and so forth. But it is not the burning of hell you know, I don't know what that actually looks like. I haven't been there, even though I've driven through New Jersey. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm from New oh, Jersey. Hey, oh. Um, I, Bruce I, I, is not happy with. No, <laughs> I know he's just unsubscribed from the podcast, which is unfortunate because he would have been a great guest. But oh well. But you know, my point being, I don't know exactly what that looks like. But what all of that is getting at is an experience of the absence of God that creates a kind of agony in those who are separated from him because it is communion with God that gives us life. It is communion with God that gives us uh, that which we want. But I think it's also important to, to point out, um, and I, I'm, I may be getting confused here, If I, I think this may be C.S. Lewis and it may be Milton, and I'm just getting it you know, reversed or something, but there is that language about uh, the gates of hell being locked from the inside. Yeah, and yeah, that, uh, that's Lewis. Yeah, I think that it is it, Lewis. I mean, it's been other people, but it, yeah. Lewis and, and, and the Great Divorce. Yes, well, he reinforces that in the Great Divorce, but it's you know the 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 concept there being that that what is ultimately at stake here is the. Uh, acceptance of God's offering of himself to us or the rejection of that offering. If you like, that can map onto or correlates to the things that we often culturally think about in relation to heaven and hell, which is, you know, whether you've been a good boy or a bad boy, you know. It, it's not it's like... It's the Who's song. Right. It's, it's the Who's song, heaven and hell. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like there's no relationship between these things. Obviously, there is. But behind all of that is that more fundamental question. Have you Do you accept the gift that God gives you of himself, or do you reject that gift? And for those who reject that gift, hell is, as hard as it is to imagine, a, a place of of choice. So we say, well, you know, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. If you 
could somehow reach into hell and pull somebody out of there and say, hey, would you like to go to heaven and hang out with God instead? The answer, presumably, would be no. I don't want to have anything to do with God. Well, and, and Lewis's book that I, that we mentioned, um, The Great Divorce, is a wonderful, wonderful novel that sort of dramatizes this in, in a profound way. And it's had an enormous influence on me. Um, I just like to say, uh, on the topic of hell, a lot of people seem to get a great kind of, I don't know, delight or satisfaction in a perverse way of just condemning huge swaths of humanity to uh, everlasting perdition. I hope and pray that everyone might accept the love of God. You know, I have to soberly acknowledge that that may not be the case. But in in, in my way of thinking, um, Jesus Christ provides hope, hope of of reconciliation with the Father. And so when, when we talk about hell, um, as far as I'm concerned, we have to always speak of it in terms of warning, a warning against hardening our hearts to the the grace of God offered to us in Jesus Christ. If people are listening to this podcast and they're terrified by, by the thought of hell, it, it's Jesus Christ who has made a way back to our Father's house, back to the heart of God. And, and so there is hope for everyone. No one is sort of hopelessly damned for eternity. But the hope of, of everlasting life is available to all who would uh, receive it willingly. I, I always loved the answer that Father Robert Farrar Capon used to give when people asked him about this question. And he would say, that at heart he was an, a universalist, but he recognized what Scripture says that there is a reality called hell, and uh, and I sort of you know think that's where we should all be as Christians, right? That we should hope universally that all people would be saved through the cross of Christ, because Jesus Christ died for everyone's sin. He died for the sin of the whole world, and that means there's nobody's sin who is not forgiven by Christ. Um, yet at the same time, we realize that there are uh, those who would turn their back on on that word, turn their back on that promise. Carl Rahner, the 20th century Catholic theologian, talks about hell as a terrifying space with no one in it. That that's his hope, that hell is, mm-hmm. is, is a space with no one in it. That I think that's a legitimate Christian hope. It's not a thing that we can know. Right. Um, but it is something that we can hope for, something we can hope for. All right. So having kind of painted this picture now, you know, bearing in mind, of course, that uh, we do realize that there are other religious traditions that have other ideas about what happens when people die, some of which are partially compatible with Christian understanding and some of which are, are not. Uh, but nevertheless, given our particular understanding that, that comes from uh, Christian revelation, uh, let's talk a little bit about how comic books have historically portrayed this. I, I think we, we've mentioned sort of popular depictions of heaven and hell and, and TV commercials and, and Looney Tunes. And, and I think, I mean, a lot of comic books just sort of feed into that. 
we don't expect comic books to be theologically correct depictions of the of the afterlife. I mean, some of this is is absurd. Some of it's played for humor or whatever. Nevertheless, there's been some very interesting uh, ways in which this question has been wrestled with in, in, in comic books. I'm thinking one, uh, in, in particular, there's a series of issues from Daredevil, I think in the 90s or maybe, yeah, it's probably the 90s, that, that really imprinted themselves on my imagination and, and terrified me as a child. Um, <laughs> The author was Anne Nocenti. It, is, that, is that her name? Anne yeah. Nocenti? Yeah. And, and the artist was John Romita Jr. And Mephisto became a daredevil villain and, and continued to be so uh, throughout her her, uh, her run on the book. And Mephisto is, is, sort, of der- uh, is sort of Marvel's uh, version of, of the devil. And he's sort of depicted in the kind of way that is the, our culture has popularly imagined the devil as a red guy with that lives in a world of flames. But John Ramita uh, changed the way that Mephisto was portrayed and made him more terrifying. And he had a son who was equally terrifying called Blackheart. And throughout this story in Daredevil, Mephisto is trying to corrupt Daredevil. Uh, he's trying to corrupt his companions, the Inhumans play a part in this. Gorgon and, and Harnack play a part part in this. And um, and at, at one point, uh, Blackheart confesses to Mephisto that he's failed to to draw Daredevil and corrupt him. So Mephisto opens up the underworld and sucks them all down into it. And each of the characters experience various trials and temptations in the underworld, which is sort of like hell, um, that they have to conquer. And uh, I think the part with Daredevil is probably the most interesting. Daredevil, of course, is blind. And he is falling, and he, he, he cannot detect anything but blankness with his extrasensory abilities. And he lands in this terrifying world of just utter emptiness, and then he starts to experience snow. like So it's kind of like a whiteout. And, and Daredevil, as a Catholic, is sort of surprised at this because he, you know, he always thought hell would be hot. <laughs> but he's kind of marching through the snow and through this world of emptiness until he finds in the middle of this nothingness uh, a confession booth. And he says it smells like old wood and incense. Daredevil enters this confessional booth and much to the dismay of Mephisto, he's able to kindle a fire uh, using the cross. And and Mephisto says, you know, no one's ever been able to create a flame in in hell, you know. And and so Daredevil has to march through the underworld with this fire, which uh, symbolizes, I think, his faith. And he has to hold it high. Uh, and keep it from being polluted by the fires of hell. And he marches through hell, and he's attacked on all sides by demons. And, and he says to himself, you know, it's like, must my whole world be about fighting and violence? And he's like, is this my fate? Is this, is this the change that I forged in this life by my life of violence? And it's only when he decides to stop fighting that he experiences 
liberation. Uh, he comes face to face with Mephisto, and he's like, he says, you know, I, I will not be uh, dragged into your darkness. I'm not going to fight. I'm going to turn my back on you and walk away. In fact, I'm going to forgive you. Uh, and, and this is infuriating to Mephisto. And then he says something that I just think is so awesome because he says, you know, and there's someone else that forgives you too. And he's our liberator. And then they all wake up and they're in a field and, and they've escaped the underworld. Um, so I, I thought that was a very um, powerful depiction of hell uh, from the pages of Daredevil. That's, um, that's fascinating too because that you know that tracks with with dante right with the divine comedy yes. where you know when he gets into uh, the deepest levels of hell it's just ice and cold right. because everything and the devil is like this thing that hardly moves because everything has kind of come to a stop um which you know, of course, makes sense. I mean, we're used to thinking of it the other way because of flames and, you know, the idea of fire is painful. But uh, but it makes sense if we think of it in terms of God being the one that generates life. And so the closer to God we are, the more life we have, the more, you know, and if you think of heat in that sense and fire in that sense as light, uh, right. Especially think about this for ancient people. Right. Because we, we tend to forget because we turn on lights that are artificial all the time. But if you live in, in the ancient world, fire is the only source of light. You've got the fire in the sky and then you've got the fire that you make uh, at night uh, in your in your home or, you know, outside of the home or whatever. And uh, so that's where this kind of light and life and energy come from. So that's really, that's a, that's a good uh, example, I think. Well, and, and, and the example of Dante, I think, brings me to the other kind of example that I was thinking of. I, I think Dante has been a source for uh, uh, ideas about heaven and hell in, in comic books, probably more so than the Bible. Um, probably. Uh, probably. <laughs> and, and Alan Moore is, is a writer who ha- is obviously very steeped in Dante um, and, and has read and thought uh, up deeply about Dante. Um, I've, I've mentioned before on the program the, the story of, uh, of Swamp Thing that goes down to hell to save his, his beloved Abigail. And sort of like there's elements of Dante in that. There's elements of the myth of Orpheus. But um, I think Alan Moore's uh, best kind of engagement with Dante comes from his series Promethea. And Promethea is a fascinating comic book. Alan Moore is is sort of a wizard. He's sort of an occultist. And uh, Promethea is like him run wild. And it can be a little didactic, but I, I find it very interesting. Um, and in that series, there's, there's, uh, there's several issues in which Promethea and, and her companion uh, travel through the afterlife in search of, of, her, of her friend's deceased husband. And for Alan Moore, this depiction is, um, well, he's, he goes to a lot of places that I don't really get and are sort of very strange. It, um, they're, they're traveling through the, um, the tree of life, which is um, associated with Jewish mysticism, the, the Kabbalah. There are these 10 emanations or, or numbers called the Sephiroth. And so um, 
they're traveling through different spheres of of the afterlife that correspond to these Sephiroth from Kabbalah. And I mean, and there, he brings in elements of tarot cards and, and, and things like that into it as well. And, and, and the artwork by J.H. Williams is probably some of the best comic book art I've ever seen. Some very innovative stuff. At one point, they're stuck on a Mobius strip, and you have to kind of like rotate the comic book to read it, and it goes around infinitely in this like kind of never-ending circle. But the highlight of it comes when they come to the golden section of the Tree of Life. Uh, I, and I'm forgetting the name of this uh, Sephiroth, but... It's the place of, of resurrection. It's the highest place uh, of human attainment. And it's the lowest place in the sphere of the earthly realm that God descends. Um, and it's the place of resurrection. And so they meet all these kind of gods that, that are, are, are dying and rising gods. But the most profound part is when they come face to face with the, the ultimate manifestation of this realm which is jesus christ himself on the cross and and it's it's dealt with surprisingly sympathetic given alan moore's paganism and 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 the fact that the the series starts with a bunch of alexandrian christians killing prometheus father but in in this place they meet jesus and they see jesus crucified on the cross and they're overcome with awe and worship and pity. And Alan Moore uh, puts in the mouth of his characters the, their guide. He says, you know, even in our darkest place, the pinnacle of humanity, the highest uh, a, a, a God is, is with us. And that's what the cross uh, symbolizes for these, you know, in this story. It's about like, I think it's 10 issues it's pretty remarkable kind of trip through the afterlife from a, a not very Christian perspective, but a, a fascinating one. Just kind of looking at some of the mainstream stuff that's out there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some of the mainstream stuff that's out there. What's happened when characters have died. And uh, Father Jonathan, you made a comment earlier about how we could do a whole episode on, you know, death and resurrection in characters because the last 20 years have really been, inundated with the death of characters and then their resurrection and just kind of looking at some of those scenarios because typically when the character dies they go someplace before they're resurrected you find a lot of different threads a lot of different ideas i can think of the example of batman a couple of years ago after grant morrison put him through the cycle in the rip storyline how in the final crisis, which was also written by Grant Morrison, Darkseid ends up uh, killing Batman. And um, in that circumstance, the afterlife looks like this sort of regression through time. Batman just keeps heading back to some sort of nothingness. Um, I guess it's kind of a riff on the idea of the Big Bang in reverse, right? I mean, you know, out of nothingness comes life and then when you die, you head back towards that nothingness. And so in that storyline, of course, Batman ends up fighting his way back uh, through time by becoming caveman Batman and pirate <laughs> Batman and everything else, you know, as a little homage to the 1950s. So that's one sort of idea of the afterlife that gets played out in the mainstream comics. And I also think of um, 
you know, Spider-Man, he recently in the issue 700, Doc Ock switches places with his body and uh, Spider-Man is condemned to Doc Ock's dying body. And he ends up um, dying in Doc Ock's body, but then he kind of becomes a disembodied spirit in some sort of dark spiritual realm and um, has the ability in that disembodied state to continue to try and break through and make contact to the world of the living. Um, so it's sort of playing on some of those ideas that we talked about earlier with that idea of a, of a state of disembodiment. Although I would probably characterize the thing that Spider-Man went through as a little bit of a limbo, a little bit of a um, kind of purgatory type place. Yeah, well, lim so, limbo and purgatory aren't the same thing. So, no, they're not technically right, but <laughs> uh, but it. I mean, there's some elements, perhaps, of both that were in there. Well, so so what is the difference since we mentioned that between uh, what's been traditionally so, described as limbo and purgatory? Be bear in mind that limbo is not something that's ever been an official doctrine of a church. Limbo is kind of a thing that people sort of believed piously for a time. And, and at this point, we've had uh, a number of, like, you know, Pope Benedict several years back uh, said something about that limbo was not really a thing uh, in terms of the official teaching of the church. Um, but there was a, a period where people theorized this idea of limbo as a way of, of trying to understand what happened. You know, what happens if you, if a unbaptized baby, for instance, dies? So there you've got uh, somebody who who was never united with Christ in the way that we understand that to take place, you know, holy baptism, and yet it wasn't their fault, <laughs> right? So, like, what happens to them? Uh, well, you know, limbo. Um, you know, it was, it was just kind of this, like, uh, it, it wasn't a terribly well-developed uh, idea. It was just sort of the answer to a, to a riddle. Um, it was a holding room. Right. Whereas pur purgatory, um, you know, we're talking about states, that heaven and hell are, are, are states. And purgatory, if you like, has never really been, well, I shouldn't say never, because there's all sorts of ways that people envision these things uh, or write about them. But historically, it's not really been envisioned as a place either, or even so much as a separate state as it is a envisioned as a process by which somebody becomes ready to enter into heaven. So you have somebody, you know, in order to come into the presence of God, God is all holy. We are not all holy. Think about it like this. If you were going to go meet uh, somebody important, I don't know, the Queen of England or something, right? And you, and you had just been out mowing the lawn. You'd probably say, you know... I'd love to meet her, but I really, I need to get a shower first. <laughs> I need to shave. I need to put on good clothes. Like, this, this would be terrible to go here, you know, sweat stains and everything in front of the Queen of England. You know, there is a kind of cleaning up that needs to take place. And so the, the idea of, of purgatory is, you hear that word purge that's in there, a kind of purging of the, the sort of sin that still clings to us so that we are prepared. But anybody who is, quote-unquote, in purgatory is already somebody who's going to be in heaven. It's not like it's, uh, you know, a place where we can kind of 
uh, have further decisions about what's going to happen here. It's this is somebody who's on their way to heaven, but who needs to be kind of cleaned up first. Now, from there, you can go into other more uh, difficult concepts and things that would be a little more controversial, like systems of merit and you know whether or not our prayers do anything for the people in purgatory and so on and so forth. But the just the general concept of somebody being purged of sin before brought into the into the presence of God. Uh, is something that has a pretty long history in both uh, Eastern and Western Christianity. But let's come back to comics for a second. <laughs> you know, you guys both uh, mentioned a number of things, and and uh, probably better than the ones that I could come up with. I mean, I thought of some of these figures who are, you know, like John Constantine, who is a you know a figure that's pretty deeply connected to uh, death in the underworld. Uh, at, how do you say his name? The demon, Etrigan, 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 Etrigan. Okay, it's one of these things. Right, one of these things you see you see written and you don't know how it's pronounced. But right. um, you know, so you have these sort of figures that show up. Um, Etrigan, of course, is I mentioned in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. He's one of Swamp Thing's gods through hell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. You have a lot of these situations where you have characters in mainstream superhero comics and so forth who are dealing with hell. Um, you know, there was a series, what, five or six years ago where Wolverine goes and, and battles a demon in hell, you know. And uh, that, that there's just there's all of these kinds of things that come up actually pretty often. So there's a lot of hell in comics. There is not a lot of heaven in comics. I don't know if you guys have have noticed that, but uh, there's not a whole lot of exploration of that as a as a as a topic. Even though, unless unless we're talking about angels, angels appear sometimes. Yeah, you you do sometimes have angels, but even there, like it seems like more often than not, um, those characters are presented as uh, we should be a little suspicious of them. Like, the main depictions of heaven I can think of are suspicious depictions. Like, something like the way heaven is presented in Preacher, for instance. Where it's yeah. this, you know, like, bureaucratic, horrible place. Or the the angels in the Lucifer comic. Yeah, they're kind of, they're kind of bureaucratic. Right, uh, right. The puritanical, not very likable. Even when it's not necessarily hell. Like, I was thinking of this, too. Like, there was a recent issue of, or a couple of issues of... Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, where Hal Jordan uh, very briefly has this near-death experience where he ends up in the place where all the old Green Lanterns go when they die. So he meets Abin Sur, the, the, the lantern who he got his ring from and so forth. And you'd think, oh, that would be a really cool thing to explore. But really all that happens is like he sees them and they're all kind of hanging out in this spot just standing there and they tell him a bunch of stuff that he needs to take with him to go back. But the place itself looks like nothing. It's just like it's just blank space that these guys are just standing in, you know. Um, you know, I think there's probably multiple reasons for why heaven is harder to explore. It's hard for us as cynical people and as people who who know what pain and suffering looks like in the world to imagine a place where there is not pain and not suffering and not be cynical about it. I think that's probably part of it. I think a lot of people find they they don't have a palette for thinking about heaven other than in the stereotypical uh, person on a cloud with a harp way 
which sounds really boring. I've actually had parishioners say this to me, like, heaven seems like it would be boring. (laughs) You know, and it's like, oh, no, man, like heaven is like the opposite of boring. Anything in this world that is good and interesting and wonderful, whatever is good, interesting or wonderful about it is a minuscule example of that thing that exists in heaven right so lewis talks about this too but like you know if you enjoy a good meal or a good glass of wine or you know walk in the forest or whatever like all the things that are good about that are essentially very small previews of what the experience of heaven is like which is not to say that heaven is just this place of wish fulfillment uh, as we sometimes think of it, but that it is a place where the culmination of joy is found in, in coming to know God. And I think that's just like, that's a hard thing to take into your brain, let alone depict through art and, and pictures. Yeah. Well, I think you also have an issue with comic books in the sense that in most of the comic book worlds, there are multiple gods and there's not one god who has made one sort of way um but there's just you know these infinite number of gods out there and so who's controlling the afterlife in these in this scenario you know mm-hmm. who's the one who determines what the afterlife is so it's hard to depict that it's a lot easier to come up with a place of condemnation where everybody can go uh, than it is to sort of determine what a uh, what a heaven would look like yeah, how do we, how do we talk about heaven and hell in, 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 when you simultaneously have you know Asgard and, and, and the underworld? You're you're, you know, you're uh, right, but we got to remember here too. You know, so comics is is a medium; it's not a genre, and we're we're kind of focusing mostly on the on dominant genre, which is the superhero genre. But right. um, but I think it's interesting that even in more independent comics this this remains true like that there is much more of a sort of a hell focus if you're looking at you know think of something like the wicked and the divine which uh kieran gillen um was writing i don't know if that's still going or not but has this sort of dark view of human nature or so forth or actually a book that i think is really pretty good is uh kelly sue DeConnick's uh, pretty deadly which is uh an interesting kind of uh, Western sci-fi kind of a book, but really it's just this exploration of what is death and what do we do with it. Now, I don't think DeConnick is a Christian, at least I've never heard her say anything to that effect, so I don't expect her to write from a Christian place, but it is interesting that the vision that she portrays, I, you can tell she is trying to find something hopeful to say in it, but keeps sort of being thrown back towards a darker, a darker place. And I don't know what that's about necessarily, but that does seem to be over and over again in comics of all sorts. It seems like that is the case. Mm. You know, I, I mentioned the story of the Prometheus story already. And, uh, and there's, there's one line in that the one character says, you know, I feel like I still feel like sorrow that mixed with profound joy. But there's sorrow here as well. I didn't think there would be sorrow in heaven. And Prometheus says, oh, well, you were thinking of Disneyland. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, heaven is a place where our tears are wiped away. They're Mm -hmm. consoled. Um, 
but but it's not just this sort of place of of giddy forgetfulness but a, a place where of, of joy which i think is 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 much more profound than just uh euphoria and it's a place where 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 sorrows are overcome and swallowed right and 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 where those things find their meaning right because, I mean, this is like you think about the resurrected Jesus who still has the wounds of the cross. Mm. And yet they are, you know, there is a healing now. He doesn't lose those wounds, but now they take on a different meaning. And I think that's part of the hope of heaven, which, again, would be really hard to depict. Because how would you? Like, how would you know what that would even look like? Um, although I guess there are ways you could sort of write stories that would hint at this. But that that heaven would be the place where the kinds of things that we have suffered, we would finally be able to see a grace spring out of them, something that is good and holy spring out of them, while still carrying the wounds. They wouldn't they wouldn't wound us anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's always been a problem. I mean, and, and even going back to Milton, everybody talks about well, in Milton the devil is so much more compelling than any of the other characters. Uh, we find it much easier to, to imagine and, and sort of uh, identify with hell <laughs> than mm-hmm. we do with, with, with heaven. Heaven is sort of, uh, it, it's, you know, by definition, it, it, it transcends our imagination. Uh, it transcends our, uh, you know, understanding. Well, this is uh, this is a, a very expansive conversation, and there's just there's a ton that um, that more that could be said, and I'm sure some of you are out there biting your tongues with what you'd like to say about it. And so, allow me to give you an outlet in the form of social media, its own kind of purgatory, social media. Um, <laughs> We would love to interact with you on social media. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash godincomics. We are also on Twitter uh, at godincomics. You can tweet at us there, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. But for now, we're going to move on to our final topic, this or that. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody. Let's this or that. Okay, this or that, take it away, Father Matt. Oh, hey, that rhymed. Uh, I wasn't trying to, it just did. (laughs) My natural hip-hop inclinations just come out sometimes. That was a fat rhyme. (laughs) So while while we're on the topic of end of life and afterlife, uh, Father Jonathan, in recent years it's been come customary to do white vestments for funerals. So uh, here's my question. White uh, for a burial or black, which is what people used to wear. Or purple, actually. There are some places or, where or, they will do purple. purple. Um, so either one is fine. I think you can make the case for either one. The trend, certainly at this point, at least in the Episcopal Church, is to wear white, and so that's that's what I do. I think there is a good case that can be made for black vestments too, though. So the case for white vestments is that 
at a funeral, we are celebrating the victory of Christ over death and the resurrection. And so white is the color of Easter. It's the color of Christmas. It's the color of God's, uh, uh, you know, doing what he does in the world, which makes perfect sense. On the other hand, black was historically used with something like a requiem mass, where we are acknowledging that we are also in need of God's mercy, praying for God's mercy, hoping for God's mercy, and praying for uh, the person who has died. I I think there is uh, perfectly good reason for that, too. And you can accentuate either one of those things. If I could do anything that I wanted, and I'm sort of ordering the universe or something like that, I think I would probably uh, prefer to do black vestments. But I'm 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 willing to accept the the use of white vestments too. Yeah, it's it's definitely the custom where I'm serving at St. George's Schenectady to do a black requiem mass, and uh, we we had three funerals. Black vestments, though, not a black mass. Let's be careful no. about this. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, could no, be no. misunderstood. No, no, yes. Uh, I will not be misunderstood in that. No, black vestments. Um, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no um, and, and, Do we need and, to tell Bishop Love right. something? This is no, breaking <laughs> news on God and Comics. <laughs> no, the, the black vestments for Requiem. Um, and and this, uh, several people who were visiting the church asked me, because it's unusual this day and age. They said, why, mm. why black? And I gave them much the same kind of explanation. Mm. You did. Father Kyle, the monkeys or oasis? Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to go with oasis. I like oasis uh, a whole lot. Uh, Father Jonathan? Yes. Ian Fleming the author of the James Bond books, or Fleming Rutledge. The, the <laughs> um, I would go with uh, Fleming Rutledge. I, 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 I don't think I've ever read any James Bond uh, novels, uh, but uh, I do love, uh, I do love Fleming Rutledge and, and uh, her, uh, her love of the cross. And uh, anyway, uh, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm going to go with Fleming Rutledge. Father Kyle, this uh, Thursday is Ascension Day, and two two different Ascension hymns. Hail the day that sees him rise, the tune Landfair, or see the conqueror mounts in triumph with the tune in Babylone. I'll go with hail the day that sees him rise. Father Jonathan, um, this one, uh, I'm, I'm going to be unorthodox and give it to you instead of Father Kyle. Nightwing or Robin? Careful now. So now here's what's interesting about this is Nightwing, as far as I know, has only been Dick Grayson, right? Correct. But there have been several Robins. So oh, yes, more um, than several. We could, we could pit them against each other, and it wouldn't necessarily have to be the same guy. But I like uh, weird... Uh, uh, conundrum so i'm going to just go with the dick grace and robin um and uh i I will take him uh over over nightwing okay good answer all right um father kyle chicken or beef tacos Mm, beef tacos i like red meat better than i like white meat 
All right. Might be the death of me, but I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, Father Jonathan, Alan Moore or Dumbledore? Alan Moore or Dumbledore? Oh, because of the wizard connection. Is that why why you've you've pitted them? I was thinking more the British. I mean, I don't oh know. well, there's that. <laughs> there is that too. Alan Moore uh, has done great work over the years, but Dumbledore uh, fills my heart with hope. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with with Dumbledore. All right, Father Kyle, man, bat, or the lizard? Yeah, I think I'm probably going to go with the lizard on this one. I think he's a slightly more intriguing character at times. Mm. How about uh, Father Jonathan? Um, This one's for you. The innocent curate or the innocence of Father Brown? (laughs) Friends, there is great irony to this question from Father Matt. And if you don't get it, uh, go check out the cover story for the uh, May 28th issue of the the Living Church, and it will all become suddenly clear. (laughs) And then remember that Father Matt is the rector of St. George's at Schenectady. Um, The innocent rector. The innocent rector. (laughs) I, you know, um, I'm going to have to go with the innocence of Father Brown because I just can't get a copy of The Innocent Curate no matter how hard I try. We so. we have tons of them. Do you really? Recording them. Oh yeah. Do you really? Uh, yes. Okay. And so here's the last one for you, Father Kyle. Um, the age-old question: the werewolf or the mummy? Ah, <laughs> uh, I would probably say. Growing up, I liked the the werewolf, uh, the wolf man, better than I liked the mummy. That's partly because I'm so super hairy that I resemble the wolf man and uh, I have to support him on that. Wait a minute. Were you this hairy as a child? I was. I've had really? a beard since I was 10 years old. What? No. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a beard since I was 19. I just, yeah. I, I love I the idea of 10 year old Kyle with his beard, like showing up to play at somebody's house. <laughs> All right, I think that's that's all of them that I have for today. Okay. Well, uh, that's all that, uh, that we have for today then, too. Uh, you can check out some links to some of the rad stuff that we talked about today on our show page over at godandcomics.com. All sorts of good stuff uh, that you can find there, and you can give the show another listen. We are also uh, available through whatever your favorite RSS uh, feed or or provider of podcasts is, including iTunes. And if you do uh, listen to the show on iTunes, we would really love it if you could go over there and and give us a rating uh, or a review or both. It only takes uh, a couple of seconds to do, and it would help us out tremendously. It really helps other people to find the show. So please do that if you can. Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right this minute, is by Father Paul Wheatley, whose own near-death experience allowed him to write the recent best-selling book, Heaven is a Hell of a Good Time. (laughs) Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. I'm Father Matt Stromberg. And we'll see ya.